So anyway, let's get into Daniel here. As you may recall from last week, Belshazzar is now dead. The handwriting on the wall. Meeny, meeny, tekelufarsen. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and it wasn't a warning. It was a pronouncement of judgment. And yet, because of, believe it or not, even a wicked pagan king like Belshazzar honored his word, and he gave Daniel all the, uh, the, 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 uh, the title, position, wealth that he had promised. Of course, it was fairly short-lived because they were conquered that very night by the Medo-Persian army and were killed. So the Babylonian Empire has been overtaken now, overthrown, and there's a new king in town, Darius or Darius, depending on how some people pronounce his name, the Mede, under the Persian king Cyrus. It was the Medo-Persian Empire. It was a blending of two groups. And so Cyrus establishes Darius or Darius the Mede as the king of Babylon, the ruler over Babylon. And at this point, Daniel is at least 80 years old, if not more so. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, the spirit of the Lord, of course. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Does this sound familiar? Same thing that happened with Joseph in Egypt. Godly men and women, when we walk uprightly before the Lord and we stand firm in the truth, you know, the Bible says that uh, God lifts up the humble, but he takes down the proud. So the governors, verse 4, and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. Common, you know, statement made when you're in front of the king. Long live the queen, long live the king, so forth. It's just a polite way of honoring them. We know that they won't live forever unless they're born again by the Spirit of God. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that those who whoever petitions any god or, or man for 30 days except you O king shall be cast into the den of lions now O king establish a decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the medes and persians which does not alter therefore king darius signed the written decree now when daniel knew that the writing was signed he went home and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom, 
since early days. So Daniel wasn't phased by this decree. It wasn't going to keep him from worshiping his God and praying to him. Even though this decree said you cannot petition any God or man for 30 days except for King Darius. Verse 11, then these men assembled found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God and they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Let's pray. Father, as we study this passage today, once again, we see that when we stand for righteousness, for holiness. We stand for you, Lord. There will be attack. There will be persecution. But you always take care of us, protect us, watch over us. And so help us, Father, as we go through this to learn more about how to do that, how to stay the course, to not waver, to not doubt, to not cave in, to not give in to those who would pressure us to back down from worshiping you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom all these magistrates, administrators, satraps, or the New American Standard Bible says it seemed good to him. Good idea. Again, he was taking over a massive empire, formerly the Babylonian Empire, now the Medo-Persian Empire. And he needed, you know, just like we have, what, 400 congressmen, congresswomen, Congress them, Congress they, Congress it, and we have what, 100 senators, senates, so they needed a large number of people to help the king oversee this empire. The satraps were like magistrates for the 120 provinces. You know, we have 50 states in our nation, and within those states are many counties. And so very similar uh, the way they set things up here in the Medo-Persian Empire. And then over all of these guys, three governors of whom Daniel was one. So there, these would be the three highest officials in the land next to the king himself. Boy, quite an honor for a man of at least 80 years of age, uh, the only difference with someone currently around that age in office is that Daniel was still very lucid, very able to communicate very well, able to interpret visions and dreams and so forth. I think the other person has visions and dreams, but he doesn't know what they mean. So, anyway, I think you get my drift, as it were. Oh, excuse, uh, excuse me, Par pardon me, pardon me, okay. <laughs> so Daniel had previously that, yep, yep. Daniel had previously been appointed prime minister in Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, remember that? Chapter 2, verse 48. Again, here he is, he's, he's a captive, taken captive 
from Judah, from Jerusalem. Daniel was one of the princes of Israel. He was part of the upper crust, the upper class, if you will. But he's taken into captivity, so he's basically a prisoner uh, there in Babylon. And yet, as he just sticks to his principles, remember he um, didn't want to eat the rich, fine foods that they were offering him as they recruited him into the, the caste of the Chaldeans. And he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were actually stronger, healthier, more alert than the others who were eating all that stuff. And of course, some of that had to do with the fact that they were trying to maintain their Jewish kosher program. But at any rate, Daniel excelled to such a degree that even though he wasn't Persian, wasn't Babylonian, he was Jewish, he rose to the very top, just like Joseph had done under the Pharaoh. So he'd been appointed prime minister, and here he's given one of three similar positions in this new Medo-Persian reign. And we're told the purpose for these three governors, interestingly enough, so that the king would suffer no loss. In other words, obviously, of course, we don't have this problem today in our government, but then they were concerned about the satraps skimming off the taxes, embezzling, and so the king wanted someone trustworthy like Daniel and a couple of other guys to keep an eye on these administrators, these satraps, these magistrates. One of their responsibilities was collecting taxes from all these different people groups that were under the umbrella of now the Medo-Persian Empire, and the king didn't want them ripping him off. So he... Did it say he appointed 87,000 IRS workers? Uh, no, I guess not. Okay, never mind. Okay. <laughs> so after at least 60 years in public service, first with Nebuchadnezzar, with his son, grandson, and now with Darius, Daniel had maintained an absolutely impeccable record of honesty as well as supernatural ability to interpret dreams and visions. And again, the point being, God will bless us if we live our lives with integrity and truthfulness. And the enemy is always trying to tempt us to take shortcuts, isn't he? The ultimate example would be when he took Jesus, came to Jesus after Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he tempts him, well, hey, if you're the son of God, Jesus, of course, the devil knew he was, Jesus obviously knew he was, you know, you've been fasting for 40 days, Jesus. If you don't eat something pretty soon, you're going to die. Turn this stone into a loaf of bread. What did Jesus say to Satan? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Satan was trying to tempt him and test him to forfeit his position as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who came to be the Savior of the world. And then he tried to tempt him by having him jump off the highest pinnacle of the temple because he said, and the devil would quote scripture to him. Has the devil ever quoted scripture to you? You have to watch out for that, folks, because the devil can read the Bible too, you know. And so, but you hear a Bible verse in your head, in your heart, in your mind, and if it causes you to feel condemned, 
beat up, taken down, then that's not from God. God will convict us of sin, but conviction always comes with a sense of encouragement that we're thankful. Thank you, Lord, for pointing that out to me. Wow, I really blew it there, or I was about to blow it there. Thank you, God, for, for the conviction of your Holy Spirit. But condemnations from the devil, in Romans chapter 8, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the enemy is pretty sly. He even quoted scripture to Jesus. And then finally, he had Jesus look out over the world, all the kingdoms of this world, Satan says, I will give to you. Now, why would Satan say that unless he was able to do that? He is referred to in the scriptures, Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. Okay, now ultimately we know God's in control. But he has given Satan a certain amount of latitude to mess with people in this world, including governments, rulers, leaders. You don't think for a moment that Adolf Hitler wasn't, at the very least, influenced by Satan, if not possessed by him. Do you, do you realize that? Do you understand that? One of our studies up in uh, Omaha that I taught was about the coming of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I talked about the fact that during World War II, the Christians alive at that time really believed that Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. And you can understand why they would have believed that. And he certainly was a forerunner or a precursor of the Antichrist. I said that about, oh, a couple presidents back and really upset some people. But I'll remind you, the guy's name is Barack Obama, by the way. And it's the only time I can remember in my lifetime where people all over the world wanted to vote for him even though he wasn't running for office in their country. 100,000 people gathered to see him in Berlin. Just to give you a couple quotes from the man himself, he got up at one of those journalistic dinners where they make jokes and roast people and all that. And one of his comments was, contrary to popular belief, I wasn't born in a manger. Who says something like that? Huh? So, you know what? If you want to get mad at me for calling him out, that's fine. But that is blasphemous. Are you familiar with the term blasphemy? That's blasphemous. And the other one... I think he had an encounter with Morgan Freeman, the actor. And uh, there was a movie called Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey. In that movie, Morgan Freeman plays God. So Barack Obama says, this is the guy that was God before I was. Last time I checked in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says that the Antichrist is going to set himself up as God to be worshipped by God and who has the gall to say that? Oh, this guy was God before I was. So now I'm God. So you judge for yourself. But if that isn't at the very least a forerunner of the Antichrist, I don't know what is. Okay? Okay? 
And by the way, I'm not the only one who has said things like that, so you can put me in the basket of deplorables, I guess. The irredeemables. But see, that, that's how the enemy works. And I even read an article recently where someone else was pointing this out, that, you know, that uh, projection. Satan loves to do that, to project onto other people, God's people, what he himself is actually doing. And those who are on the heathenistic, paganistic, anti-God segment of our society, they love to do the same thing. When they call you irredeemable, wait a minute, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You're the one who's irredeemable. And by the way, do you know the Bible does teach that, that someone could get to that point where God turns them over to a reprobate mind? Their conscience are, are seared as with a hot iron. It is possible to get there. I don't recommend anybody playing around with that, walking that line, taking that chance that you would become so anti-Christ, so anti-God, that you do literally become irredeemable. Now I've said before, there's always hope even till the very last moment. If you take your last breath, you can still be saved. But if you, you remember a guy named Pharaoh? The Bible talks about how God hardened his heart. Why would God do that? If God is such a loving God, why would he harden Pharaoh's heart? Because Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. God will give you what you ask for. If you determine in your heart and mind, I want to be deceived. And by the way, that also says that there in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Let no one deceive you. Really? Don't let them. If you become deceived, it's because you've allowed it. Don't allow it. But if you allow it, if you choose it, then God will say, okay, if that's what you want, here it is. You're deceived. Had no plans to get out there in that direction, but that was that's what happened. Verse 3, <laughs> Daniel 6. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. There's an old expression, the cream always rises to the top, right? You can't keep, I like to say you can't keep a God man down, a godly man down. You can't keep a good man down. And so here's Daniel, even in his old age, rising to the top to the, to the degree that the king's thinking, man, maybe I should just put this guy over the whole thing. See, if we obey the scriptures, and again, I talked about that temptation with the enemy, trying to get you to take the shortcut. He says to Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. Well, you know what the devil knew? He knew that ultimately Jesus would own all the kingdoms of this world. So he wasn't offering Jesus anything that Jesus didn't already know would become his. He's offering him the shortcut. And that's what the devil will do with you. The devil will try to get you to take the shortcut. Well, we're going to get married anyway. Let's just go ahead and start enjoying it now. Right? Or whatever it might be. Try to get you to take the shortcut. 
Daniel didn't have to take shortcuts. He's following the Lord, living for the Lord. They come and find him. If we obey the scriptures, God will raise us up and bless our lives because, as in the case of Daniel, it brings glory to his name. And that's ultimately what it's all about. We tend to go through life thinking everything revolves around us, right? That uh, God is here to serve us, to meet our needs, and so forth. Well, he said if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then he will add those things unto you. But the idea is you keep your eyes on him. You're following him. You're seeking after him. And then he takes care of all the uh, peripheral things. But you know how I like to say it's all about him, it's all because of him, and it's all for him. Jesus even said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the son of the living God. If Jesus came to be a servant, how much more should we be servants of one another and of God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, that's a question we should all ask ourselves when we engage in various activities. It might really limit our activities, to tell you the truth. Can I do this thing to the glory of God? Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed... Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, through Jesus. Our words should match our deeds. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Can you do this thing in the name of the Lord? Okay, I'm going to rob this bank in the name of Jesus. No, nope, that doesn't work, does it? I'm going to pilfer funds from the uh, company safe or cash box. In Jesus' name, doesn't work. It's a good way to keep our actions, our activities under control. Finally, Colossians 3.23, And whatever you do, do it heartily, not half-heartedly, but heartily, enthusiastically. As believers, you know, God really expects us to give our all in any situation that we find ourselves in. Do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. But how often do we do what we do with an eye to who may be watching? We want to impress someone. Daniel never did that. He never did anything to impress anyone, and yet God raised him up mightily. Because an excellent spirit was in him, that would be God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. We had a Afterglow service Friday night where we prayed for people uh, to be filled with the Spirit and so forth, to be healed and, and various things. You know, Jesus said that the Father loves to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And just like we are saved by grace through faith, we aren't given the gift of salvation because we deserve it. We're given the gift of salvation because God loves us. The same thing is true of the Holy Spirit. God does not fill us with his Holy Spirit because we deserve it. 
He does it because he loves us. We're his children. He loves to give good gifts to those who ask, it says. And the greatest gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit. But notice, God says you need to ask for it. And I would say we should be asking God every day to fill us with his Holy Spirit. Lord, give us the strength to live for you today, to be guided and directed by your Holy Spirit, to walk uprightly before you. And he will be faithful to do that if we ask him. An excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So in spite of his advanced age, the king considered making Daniel numero uno, next to only the king himself. But look what happens. Look out, jealousy is about to rear its ugly head here again. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom that he was uh, some kind of an insurrectionist, a usurper. They did that to Jesus, too. Tried to say that Jesus was inciting insurrection. Where have we heard that word recently? Insurrection against Caesar, against the Roman emperor. False charges. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. And so just like the corrupt rulers and leaders of today in our nation, other nations around the world. There are those who are hungry for power, for position, for wealth, and they become jealous of those who actually achieve it by proper means, and they seek to take it away. We've been watching that for um, about six years now. Because of their jealousy, the governors and satraps looked for some dirty laundry in Daniel's life so that they could get him kicked out of office. So they broke into his house in Mar-a-Lago. Oh, no, that's, I'm sorry. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I misread my notes. But Daniel, Daniel was above reproach, trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Jesus in John 14 30 says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. And Daniel, the enemy had nothing in Daniel. I wonder how many of us can say that. And that's what the enemy seeks to do. If you're born again, if you're a believer, if you're a child of God, he cannot take away your salvation. He lost. Jesus won. You're going to be going to heaven. You're going to be spending eternity with God in paradise. So what does he seek to do? He's not, he's not going to just go, oh, you're a believer now. Okay, see you later. No. He's going to seek to make your life. If he can't take you to hell with him, he's going to seek to make your life on earth hell by finding some hook that he can put in you. You know, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, sexual addiction, you name it. Jesus, here comes the prince of this world, the devil. He has no place in me. But he seeks to build up strongholds in our lives. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. 
So pray and ask God, show me, Lord, does the enemy have any strongholds in my life? And if, if he does, you need to pray, you need to seek God, you need to do whatever it takes to get those strongholds removed from your life. In James chapter 5, it says, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. You might have to get with a brother or sister in the Lord or a pastor or someone and confess those sins and say, I need prayer. I need to get rid of this stronghold in my life. Pornography. There are many strongholds that the enemy can establish. Even in the life of a believer, we would love it if when we got saved, God waved his magic wand over us and we became perfect. But that does not happen in this life. That happens in the next life. In this life, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take it seriously. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. But once you're saved, God says, now, you need to spend the rest of your life working it out, becoming the person that I pronounced you to be when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. The minute you receive Christ, your sins are forgiven, you're washed in the blood of the Lamb, you're sanctified, you're set apart, you're justified, but now the challenge is to live that way for the rest of your life. It's called discipleship, becoming a disciple of Christ. Ephesians 4.27, Paul says, do not give the devil a foothold. And see, people don't think about that. They don't realize that when we, you know, we dip our toe into that pond. Well, I probably shouldn't go there. I don't, I, yeah, I'm going to go there, right? No big deal. God will forgive me, right? But you just gave the devil a foothold. A friend of mine used to say, he was a pastor, kind of a mentor in my life. And the warning was concerning raising up people in ministry that might not be ready or prepared or might not have the right motives. And he said, it's a whole lot easier to lay hands on than it is to lay hands off. It's a whole lot easier just to put somebody in a position, give them a position, than it is to remove them. And you know, it's a whole lot easier to avoid those strongholds, those footholds of the enemy, those fish hooks, if you will, it's a whole lot easier to avoid them and stay away from them than it is to get rid of them once the enemy gets the foothold in your life. Everything God warns us against is because he loves us, he cares for us, he knows what will happen. That's why it says he hates divorce in the Bible. He doesn't hate people who are divorced. And he doesn't write you off if you've been divorced. He doesn't. Now, there are some churches, some believers that will. You're anathema after that. You're Ichabod. You're done. You're toast. Because God hates divorce. Why does God hate divorce? Because it's destructive. It destroys lives. It brings torment into the lives of those involved in it. Financial distress, emotional distress, confusion, remorse, and we know that it's extremely damaging to children when their homes are broken apart. Now the modern 
unbelieving world is telling us it doesn't matter. In fact, they're really promoting the, the, uh, the superiority of a single-parent home, a single-parent family. Encouraging women, young girls, women, to have children out of wedlock without some uh, toxic male in the house. Toxic masculinity. Stop mansplaining. <laughs> but folks, the evidence is so tall, so wide, and so deep of the destructive nature of broken homes and how it impacts the children. There's no argument. There's no argument. It's a fact. That's why God hates it. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God doesn't hate the lady who gets an abortion, but he hates the act because it's murder. You're killing a human being. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. He wants to heal you, restore you, forgive you. But again, what did I say? Better not to go there. It's a lot easier to not go there than it is to get healed after you do it. There are women who go through literally years and years, decades of mental, emotional, even, even physical torment after an abortion or multiple abortions. They don't tell you that. Oh, it's just a simple medical procedure. It's just like getting a tooth pulled or, oh no. See, that's another lie from the pit of hell. Sadly, most people today, that's how they live their lives, based upon all the lies of the devil. Believing them to be true, the projection. Anyway, I was worried that I wouldn't have enough material this morning, but isn't that funny? <laughs> so verse 5, These men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of God. The only possible potential conflict that they could find had to do with Daniel's absolute commitment to Jehovah God. So when all else fails, play the religion card, right? This airline does not allow you to wear a cross. You, um, what do they call them now? They're not stewardesses and stuff. Flight attendants. We don't allow our flight attendants to wear a cross. No problem with a burqa or what have you. Oh, well, we don't allow you to bring your Bible to work. Oh, is that a Koran? That's cool. Religion card. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king. I mean, they're just flooding in there en masse. And said to, thus to him, King Darius, live forever. Oh yeah, praise you, hallelujah. They're smacking up to him before they get ready to unload regarding Daniel. Sounds like the Pharisees going to see Pilate, doesn't it? Betraying the Son of God. So verse 7, all the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Years earlier, of course, they tried it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace 
They didn't burn. The last apostle alive on planet Earth at the end of the first century was John the Apostle. They tried to boil him in oil. He wouldn't boil. What have I told you so many times? You're not going anywhere till God's done with you. Doesn't matter if it's a fiery furnace, a den of lions. But they had set the king up here for this. He wanted to make Daniel the, the top dog next to himself. They've all consulted together. They've agreed. And we all know the majority is always right. Right? Right? In my opinion, the majority is almost never right. Read your Bible. Whether or not every single government official had been consulted, they, they portray it that way. And it's obvious that this developed into a very large conspiracy against Daniel. Most likely promises were made, bribes were given in exchange for complicity in this scheme. Again, does that sound familiar? Mail-in ballots, 2,000 mules, for those of you who saw that, bogus voting machines. We've just got to take this 80-year-old guy, Daniel, out. He is such a threat. He's a threat to democracy. So they, to establish a royal statute to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So they pander here to the king's ego. For 30 days, we're going to call a moratorium that nobody can worship anybody but you, Darius. Does that sound good? Well, yeah, that sounds pretty good, yeah. I mean, he, Darius isn't a bad guy. He really likes Daniel. He's very impressed by Daniel, but he is a pagan. And the idea that nobody can pray to anyone or anything except me? Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Let's do that. They pander to his ego by encouraging an edict that makes him the sole object of worship for a 30-day period. All Darius, all the time, 24-7-30. Two weeks to stop the spread. No in-person church services allowed. Yeah. Been there, done that. No, thank you. Verse 8. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter, as you know, king. Once you sign this, it's rock solid. It's set in stone. You can't change it. Just like Nebuchadnezzar before him. Many years before. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that they could have a hard copy documentation to use against Daniel, a government mandate. Once a royal decree had been issued, as you know, we've already studied this, it could not be revoked, even by the king himself. The same thing happened with uh, Xerxes and in the time of Queen Esther. Haman talks him into giving an edict concerning the annihilation of the Jews, but Esther and Mordecai were able to subvert that and save the Jews and flip it around on them. Same kind of a deal, though. Once a royal decree had been issued, it could not be revoked, even by the king himself. It remained in force until its time of expiration, in this case, 30 days. So the practice of creating an unchangeable law 
may follow from the idea that changing a decree was an admission that the decree had been faulty in the first place. So we don't alter it because we'll never admit that it was wrong. CDC, Fauci, Burks, Pfizer, Moderna. Hello. Although Dr. Burks did publicly admit that they lied to President Trump. And Fauci just came out and said that he knew that the, um, the lockdown, the mandate, would do great harm to children. He knew it. I guess, he, I guess he's kind of like W.C. Fields. He doesn't really particularly care for children. Man that hates dogs and kids can't be all bad. You ever heard that one? I guess we could start calling him W.C. Fauci. So these conspirators, boy, I'm really digging in deep today, aren't I? For those of you who've been thinking, wow, he's really chilled out and mellowed out lately. Well, that's gone out the window. These conspirators want to make sure Darius has no back door, knowing that he thinks very highly of Daniel. They're jealous. They're envious. They don't want Daniel to get the top position in the land as a Jewish immigrant. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. He didn't realize what they were setting him up for. After all, he was a pagan king. He was being given bad advice by his trusted advisors. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. What did he do? In his upper room, he went with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since his early days. This would have been towards the west because Babylon's to the east. So he turned towards the west, towards Jerusalem, the place where God's holy temple had stood prior to destruction and before being rebuilt. And it's a place that David refers to in Psalms 5-7. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. His enemies were correct in assuming that if Daniel were forced to choose between the decree of an earthly king and the eternal word of the king of heaven, he would choose his God, and he did. So they assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. They were eavesdropping, just like the men who caught the woman in adultery. Did you ever wonder how they did that? Remember they brought the woman before Jesus and said, well, the, the law says this woman should be stoned to death. She was caught committing adultery. Really? Well, how do you know that? Were you peeking in her window? Obviously. These guys are peeking in Daniel's window, watching him pray to God, eavesdropping snakes. And so here comes the big setup as we close today. I joked up in Omaha about how... Um, you know, pastors will get up and say, well, finally, Paul says, finally, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, finally, in closing, and then they go on for another 20, 30 minutes. I'm not going to do that. But here's the setup. They went before the king. They spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Didn't you? You did. You signed it, right, king? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. And not knowing what they're up to, the king confirms his edict 
and now the trap has been set. But we'll see how that backfires next time. Let's stand. If you have a prayer request this morning, please raise your hand. We'd like to pray for you. Whatever it might be, God knows. He knows your heart. He knows your mind, what's on your mind. Father, before we lift up all these prayer requests, which we will here momentarily, we do thank you for your word, for the wisdom that can be gained from studying your word, Lord. But we know, as, as James wrote, we're not to just hear your word and then go away like someone has looked in, into the mirror and then goes away and forgets what they look like. Lord, your word is a mirror into our souls, into our hearts and minds. But Lord, James says, don't be a hearer of the word only, but be a doer also. Help us to be doers. Just like Daniel, Father, help us to be men and women of integrity who know what we believe because we have studied your word and you have imparted to us the truth contained in your word. Lord, help us to stand on that truth, not to live our lives based on feelings and emotions. Lord, we know that you've given us you created that part of us also. But Lord, we're not to be ruled over and governed by our feelings and emotions. And Lord, we know that when we are totally yielded to you, that you will help us to have control over those feelings and emotions so that the enemy will not be able to gain any stronghold, any foothold in our lives. But Father, there may be some here today right now who, as we spoke about this this morning, they're realizing and recognizing, yeah, the enemy does have some strongholds in my life. He does have a foothold, and I don't want him to. Lord, we pray for your help, for your deliverance, for your wisdom and guidance to help each one here today uh, that may have one or more strongholds of the enemy in their life, that you would help them, Lord, to, to reach out to you. Lord, uh, you said that your, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty, they're spiritual to the tearing down of strongholds, Lord, impart to us the understanding of how to use those spiritual weapons to tear down those strongholds of the enemy. And Lord, help us to be willing to do whatever it takes so that we would be able to say, like Jesus and others, like Daniel, like Paul, here comes the prince of this world and he has no place in me, no foothold in me. Lord, we want to be like that. We need your help. We ask for your help. Lord, we pray for those that raise their hand today for healing, for a physical issue, for health issues, whether it's allergies, asthma, COPD, cancer. Lord, whatever it might be, we know that no affliction is too small that you don't care about it, and no affliction is too large that you cannot conquer it and overcome it for us. So we pray for healing for each and every one here today, and Lord, for those who couldn't be here today because of health issues. Lord, those that are on the hearts and minds of people here today, family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, we pray, Lord, that you'd bless them with healing and they would be quick to give you the glory and the honor for it, that you would be glorified through the healing of our physical bodies. Lord, we also pray for mental and emotional issues, Lord, that can plague us and beset us. We ask for healing. Lord, you said you came to heal the brokenhearted. To me, Lord, that speaks of anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, all these things. We pray for healing in Jesus' name, that you would help us learn how to seat ourselves in heavenly places with you, Lord, because your word says that we are. We're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Lord. We should never be living our lives 
under the circumstances. Help us to, to see ourselves as you see us, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask you to give us victory over every kind and every form of mental or emotional illness, sickness. Lord, we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. We pray for relationships that have been damaged or broken to be healed, restored, set right. Marriages, friendships, sibling rivalries, Lord. We lift it all up to you and we pray that you'd help us to be peacemakers. Lord, you said that the peacemakers would be blessed and we certainly desire your blessings in our life. We ask you to help us, show us, teach us, guide us on how we can be peacemakers and not wait for the other person to reach out to us, but help us to be proactive, to reach out to them. Lord, to ask for forgiveness whether, wherever and whenever it's necessary. And Lord, maybe even sometimes when we didn't even do anything wrong, but we can inaugurate and initiate peace, peacemaking and healing of relationships by going the extra mile and asking forgiveness. Lord, we also lift up economic issues. Lord, our world is getting economically torn apart right now for a variety of reasons. But Lord, we thank you that we have confidence in you, that you're our provider. You're the one who takes care of us. Lord, we thank you for that. And we ask you to help us to keep our eyes on you in these troublesome times, that no matter what happens, no matter how expensive gas gets or food or anything else, utilities, that we, you'll keep us strong in our faith, trusting in you to provide for us. And we do pray, Lord, for anyone here today or anyone represented here today, anybody watching online, Lord, that's struggling, concerned, please lift worry and doubt and fear from them. Give them peace. We also pray that you would provide for each and every need according to your riches and glory, Father. We thank you for this time together today. We pray that you go with us as we depart, that you keep us safe going home, out to lunch, whatever it might be, and keep our hearts and minds, Lord, focused on you. We ask you to receive now this final offering of praise as Roy leads us in our closing song. In Jesus' name, amen.